Precision Fermentation is the creator of Brew Monitor, a real-time fermentation monitoring and analytic system. Brew Monitor works with your existing tanks and delivers live fermentation data to your laptop or mobile device anytime, anywhere. Tracking dissolved oxygen, gravity, pH, temperature, conductivity, and pressure in real time, the system provides approximately 140,000 data points over the course of a standard five-day fermentation, accessible through easy-to-use dashboards and graphics. Brew Monitor allows you to use any fermentation as a benchmark for all future batches of that style, eliminating guesswork and helping improve consistency. And the system automatically alerts you via text or email when any of the measured variables track outside of your desired range. Real-time fermentation monitoring allows you to quickly assess yeast vitality, prevent problems, fine-tune recipes, and monitor cellar-related inconsistencies while providing greater process control for a more profitable enterprise. Visit precisionfermentation.com to download a free white paper or try Brew Monitor, Brew Monitor for yourself with no risk, money back guarantee. That's precisionfermentation.com. And now that people are starting to join us, let's get to the action. I always feel like I'm reading a podcast ad when I read script like that, and I guess it's kind of what I'm doing. Then I feel like I sound like every other podcast ad you've ever heard, but Anyways, I'm excited to have all you guys today. Brian, if we can start with you, we're going to talk a lot about drinking misperceptions today, but I want to give some brief introductions, and you're going to do that for me, Brian. Start us off. Thanks a bunch, Andrew. Appreciate you uh, having me on the panel. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, I'm, uh, I am a reporter. I've covered uh, the beer industry in some form or another for almost 10 years. Uh, I'm currently the Sightlines editor uh, and podcast host with the Good Beer Hunting publication. I'm also director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers, which is a trade organization that represents uh, journalists, reporters, podcasters from around the country and world. Tara, you're up. Yeah, Brian, you are a phenomenal leader of the guild, by the way. <laughs> I'm loving all the stuff you're programming. Hi, everyone. I'm Tara Nuren. I'm a freelance journalist. Um, my main gig is that I'm the Beer and Spirits contributor to Forbes. And Andrew, I don't know if you know this, but I actually write the blog articles for Precision Fermentation. I do know that. Bruce has told you know me. That. Um, super geeky. And um, I've got a book coming out next year about the history of women in beer. No, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Now, Aaron, I think you mentioned something about you're a professional wrestler. I am. I have no idea how I made my way onto this panel. It's absolutely bizarre. But uh, no, my name is Aaron Gore. I am the uh, owner and founder of Fresh Pitch Beverage Consulting. I'm also a staff writer for PorchDrinking.com and BeerCharlotte.com. And uh, yes, I used to be a professional wrestler in my late teens and early 20s. And you'd be amazed how many uh, cross skills there are between beer sales and wrestling. Aside from that, I'm just amazed and privileged to be on a panel with uh, such wonderful people, and please don't kick me off. Excited to have you, as always, Aaron. And Julie, we've had a lot of conversations, but for everybody who doesn't know who you are, why are you here? Hi, I am Julie Rhodes. I was not a professional wrestler at any point in my life, um, although I did play amateur billiards um, in BCA for like six years, so... Yeah, I, I like to play pool. That's before I had kids. But yeah, so <laughs> I'm the owner and operator and ed main educator um, of Not Your Hobby Marketing Solutions. Um, basically, I teach people how to sell more beer, whether that's through sales skills, uh, better digital marketing, 
um, working with your distributor, um, learning how to work more profitably with your distributor partners. Um, yeah, I do sales workshops. I have digital courses. Um, I love these people on this call. I'm a published author kind of all over the place in different places. Um, I write my own blog articles. Yay. I'm sorry. <laughs> was that a jab at Tara or precision? I know yeah, I, I, I need Tara as like a guest blog um, writer on my website. That would be super fun. Um, and I'm looking forward to her book as well. Um, yeah, I, I'm ready to get into this. So I'm going to stop talking about myself. No, I'm excited to have you four here today. And before we dive into data, that's just going to be so fascinating to go through. I want to read a couple things that are just a more simple, laid back way to get started before we get too in depth. Now, I know a lot of us read Mark Brown's daily email and it has tons of great statistics in it, which I always enjoy. But I also enjoyed this tidbit he put out today. And I learned that a World War II Air Force veteran who made headlines in 2018 for crediting his longevity to his daily core's light celebrated his 103rd birthday. So I want to say there is a little positive news in the world today by drinking Coors Light at 4 p.m. So cheers to that guy. And also a little more positive news, you know, early in the pandemic. Yeah, definitely. Cheers. Now, now imagine so, how long he would have lived if he was drinking good beer. Yeah, that's a whole another data point we can talk about shortly. But, you know, another good thing, Aaron, you know, early in the pandemic, almost 85% of brewers predicted if this went on six months, it might not be here. So I think we can look at six months ago in that statistic and say that, hey, a lot more breweries than expected survive. So that's another positive. And something else I want to throw out there, Brian, this one's for you. Yes, the other day when we had our little practice conversation about all of this, I cracked a beer and I was drinking it and I felt a little funny on camera because I was the only person drinking. So you guys are probably looking at me like, why is this guy drinking while we're having a professional conversation? I want to point out, I was actually drinking a non-alcoholic beer that day. So despite your perceptions of what I was drinking, you may have been wrong. But now right. we're going to get Now, Tara, this was conversation was really your idea because you've gone into a lot of articles really on the subject of drinking misperceptions. So I want to kind of talk about what made you choose to actually even dive into that subject in the first place, which kind of leads to why we're here today. So I spent the first maybe half of the uh, pandemic. Sorry, am I echoing? Am I okay? I hear myself echoing. Okay. I spent about the first half of the pandemic fighting everybody about the fact that Americans were not drinking ourselves into a stupor every day and night of the pandemic. There were so many headlines, so much talk about how drinking was off the charts, right? Um, and then I got to talking to Aaron and Julie about it, and we started our little like policing of this issue. Um, and, you know, that was the hill I was going to die on. And it's interesting what a difference a little bit of time can make um, because things have evolved um, and the story now is much, much, much more complicated and much more nuanced as we'll dive into um, later but or throughout the hour. Uh, but I feel like what I learned from um, shifting my perception from, you know, at the beginning and middle of the pandemic when this, all these myths were going around and we really were not drinking mm -hmm. and, and buying as much as everybody said we were at all, um, is that 
it's really important with a story like this to pay attention to the details of how things are written. Um, and I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but as I was doing some research today, looking up data, I was struck with how often the people putting the data out, the organizations, even the credible ones, you know, Nielsen, et cetera, they're not defining their terms. And I feel like that's what got us into this problem in the first place because Nielsen, IRI, you know, we know that they just measure the off-premise, but your average CNN, NPR, Philadelphia Inquirer reporter doesn't know that. So they'd be charged, go write a story about drinking in the pandemic, they'd see the numbers, not realize that when we're looking at a number that says, you know, uh, sales have gone up 212%, that's only in one channel. So looking at some of those myths you wanted to dispel, I mean, obviously the amount of consumption was a big one. What are some of the statistics early on that you would read from other publications, and anyone can jump in on this one, that upsets you and wanted you to dive further into the, the truth? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll hop in on that. I mean, if you looked at CNN or NPR, uh, a lot of them were taking a look at those uh, IRI and Nielsen channels in particular. That, that's the scan data is, is what it's typically referred to. And what, what they do is they track spending among a representative sample size at a certain subset of channels. Now, those subset of channels are, are your typical uh, multi-use, convenience, grocery stores, all, all, all the places that, that people tend to um go when they're doing kind of general shopping, kind of the old school retailers, uh, which is wonderful. The problem and within that context, they're wonderful. It's like anything. Any sort of statistic is only as useful as the context within which it's framed. So a lot of those uh, news channels were taking a look at the numbers that were absolutely slaying it at those traditional off-premise channels. And they were missing the fact that off-premise had completely evaporated, that independent and even some big box were not being captured. Kroger, for example, largest uh, grocery channel in the entire country is not part of uh, Nielsen's network, it's only part of IRI. Um, so there, and if you ask even some of the big breweries, for example, just on beer Twitter, uh, less than a week ago, there was a really good thread talking about how much of even some of the larger craft breweries is captured by that uh, scan data. Uh, New Belgium was good enough to actually share their numbers and pre-pandemic or that pre-pandemic, they were only capturing about 40 to 50% of New Belgium's overall sales. Uh, now it's up closer to 70% because of how much Voodoo Ranger has grown in those off-premise channels. But it shows the fact that that is extremely useful information, extremely useful data within the subset of context that it, it is intended to be used for and in which it's gathered. And that connection was missed by a lot of that general reporting to what are otherwise lay people. And even some industry people who might not be as deep into this, you know, obnoxious numerical math heavy data game as the people represented on this call. Well, and I think it's going to be harder and harder as the um, market segments into more and more and more channels. You're talking about channels. I mean, there's so much that doesn't get captured in those numbers. Um, you know, honestly, I wondered why we even rely on them to tell any sort of complete story at all. So um, if anyone out there really likes data and really wants to start a business, <laughs> please start measuring more channels. Damn it, Brian. <laughs> not, not to be contrarian, because I think that we all share both an understanding and appreciation for what these figures are and what they represent. 
But one of the things that I always point to and the reason as an IRI guy uh, who looks and cites that data regularly, one of the things that I do appreciate about it, and it has been enhanced during the pandemic, is its representation of the average consumer. So while we're talking in this moment about the entirety of sales, for example, there is a lot that people can take away when you're looking at individual trends, whether it's within shorter time periods, specific categories, uh, styles of gear, brands. And so that's also where we're myself as a reporter, I will turn to to better understand what's going on. Now, is it the 100% complete picture? No. Um, but off-premise cha off channels, of which there is a decent enough that is captured within IRI and EOS, that's about 80% of the volume that's gets sold of alcohol in the United States. So again, it's like to what you're talking about, Aaron, like we have all these pieces of context and as we look at it to better understand the world around us, I think it does bring a lot of value when we get down to analyzing what it all means. Yeah, can I, I chime in on that only because I, um, no, because I, so in the way in which I work with um, breweries or cider houses or mead or distilleries or whatever it might be, in that capacity, the way that I process all this is such that I get um, people's feedback as well, right? So before we get into like the real meaty data, because I know Brian is sitting on like a wealth of knowledge right now that like some of us don't. <laughs> and again, like to reiterate uh, what Aaron said, for those of us data nerds that are like, this is like Christmas, you know, like we get to explore all of this. But for those people that are beginning to take a look at data or you just started a, a craft beverage production business or just transferred from home brewing um, to being in business for yourself. Data is not for the big kids. It, it has to be observed at the smaller, even if you're a brew pub, you know what I mean? The thing is, is that you're selling goods to the general public. And if you know what the general public is buying and you can make that connection, then you can forecast sales and you can kind of get a feel for um, the the climate of what the economy is doing and how people are spending their money, which is really important because beer is not a survival need unless you're a monk and you're doing special things. But um, for those that you know, contrary to popular belief, it's not a it's not like shelter and you know clean water. It's discretionary income. So when you can look at data more in relation to your beverage business. Um, and I just want to make that clear for people that are maybe just getting started and might not know, like, you know, IRI, Nielsen, scan data, things like that. It's basically what people are putting into their basket at stores. And it's really important to determine that when you're looking at your business as a whole. So now we can dive in. I just wanted to get that, you know, control state out. <laughs> Yeah, and I do think as our industry is important, all in favor. <laughs> I do think as our industry matures, more people are going to start seeing the value of data, especially as companies realize they need to understand that side of their operation. It's going to be necessary for their for their growth. But Brian, you know so much about you know what people are currently drinking. You know, Tara, you talked about what people the misperceptions we have about what people are currently drinking. But Brian, what are people actually consuming right now? IPA. 
yeah. So one of the things that I've I've pointed to uh, consistently over the last nine months, and I think this has been a narrative, at least within uh, kind of like the in-industry people looking at it, is the acceleration of specific trends because of the way that the pandemic has shifted both buying and consumption habits. Um, so, like you know, this year, like any other year, um, IPA is going to be something like you know eighteen to twenty percent year-to-year growth in terms of dollar sales in those IRI retail channels. Um, but within, if, to get maybe to what I was talking about before too, like if you want to drill one level down beneath that too, without a doubt, the biggest winner when you want to talk about that category specifically is one the style of double IPA. Uh, and Aaron, you mentioned Voodoo Ranger. Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA is probably objectively the biggest story in terms of sales of the last 12 to 18 months. Um, that beer has become a monstrous beast for New Belgium. Uh, and for a moment in time uh, between, it was mid-October and mid-November, was the number one selling IPA in the country in IRI channels. Uh, and so that shift both in terms of the kinds of IPAs that are selling, so we're talking about higher alcohol here, are also reflective of broader decisions that Americans are making in terms of their drinking over the last 20 years. And that is we are collectively drinking about the same uh, and we are drinking higher proof things. So the equivalent serving size of our wine, beer, spirits has rapidly been increasing. Uh, If you look at the last 20 years, the 2000 through 2019, the total gallons of alcohol consumed by Americans, this is based off of both government and private industry data, uh, grew by about 9%. Meanwhile, the serving size equivalent, so that's effectively ABV and proof, grew by about 25%. So that's just like one way to look at how those things have shifted between our drinking in terms of volume versus what we're drinking. Well, I also think it's important to keep in mind that this isn't limited to the last 20 years or the rise of craft beverages, because you're 100% right, Brian, but that rise in uh, ethanol consumption per capita has been going on since 1990. And if we are still sub nine liters per annum. We are still uh, more than a full liter. So at least, you know, 12, 13% below the, uh, the hundred year high of 1980. So, I mean, we still, it's been a steady thing. We've not seen appreciable increase on a large scale over the last 12 months, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail, but I mean, this is this has been the continuation of a trend that has really risen, not just even with millennials and Generation Z, but even to a lesser degree with our parents. Well, my parents. I don't know everybody's parents, but <laughs> my mom drinks double IPAs. Just for the record, my parents don't drink. They are no fun. <laughs> no, and I'm really devil's advocate here too because I love that statistic, and I feel like it shows this like almost glaring gap with ABVs. And I don't know if anybody else agrees, Brian, you might have some concrete data that supports this, but I feel like we're living in a, in a time period of extremes right now, because you've got people gravitating towards more health conscious, like sessionable, either NA beer or low alcohol, low, low ABV, you know, things like that. And then you've got kind of this like messy middle, and then you've got like your high end, like super octane, um, you know what I mean? So sometimes I feel like 
when I hear people say like, oh, it's hard to sell like my core lineup or the things that kind of fall in the middle. And sometimes I feel like that's kind of, I don't know, what would you say? Like five to like 8% probably that that's like kind of a hard space to be in as far as ABV goes. But I'd be curious what other people think of that as well. Yeah, I mean, if, even if you want to look at Brewers Association defined brands specifically, last year, pretty much all the growth exclusively was coming from beers that would be roughly 6% ABV and up. Yeah, and Voodoo Ranger, the Imperial IPA, is, is a 9% beer. So, I mean, that's, that's a high alcohol beer right there. And it's fascinating to see something that high driving the segment so much. It's important. It's now, important too to realize that like six percent doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking an average, I mean, to Brian's point, I mean, you're you got a huge segment of beer that's taken up with four and a half percent light lagers. So, I mean, just moving the average that far forward is is hugely significant. Yeah, there was um, this kind of this phrase that I think's been rattling around my head the last couple of weeks because so much attention has been put toward this idea of the way that uh, seltzers or low-cal beverages have started to impact the alcohol market, this idea of, of less but better. And the but better can mean so many different things. And I think that speaks both to the anecdotes that we all know, as well as some of the, the objective, quantifiable truths that we've seen, where less may be the actual volume, but better could be the premiumization that goes on, which sometimes inherently also means higher alcohol content. Uh, and that we do see across wine, spirits, and beer, beverage alcohol as a whole, where people, as they're choosing to maybe move up in the price point, it's more often to find those higher alcohol content. So in this case, you know, the but better may simply be the quality or the perceived experience of what it is. The less can be consistent as the common denominator, but the bet, but better could be the health value, uh, the alcohol content, which we know is to be true that somebody or some people will, will look for as well. Um, so there are a whole host of these things, Julie, like you're talking about this range, these, this reverse bell curve that kind of exists. And it's not limited just to beverage alcohol either. I mean, you see this across the board with millennials and Generation Z. Look at the slow food movement, which honestly, if we're being real with ourselves, that locavore slow food movement, craft beer is really just an offshoot of craft, craft beverages in general. Uh, the better for you movement, the health and wellness movement. I mean, all these things, to your point, Brian, is just showing that millennials, they will spend, they will go out and they will go out less often than their parents and their grandparents to, to, to eat, or they will buy fewer clothes, but they will tend to be of higher quality and they'll tend to spend more on any given visit because they're willing to pay more for something better than to get quality has lost some of its, uh, well, quality in the eyes of that, uh, or quantity has lost some of its quality in the eyes of that generation. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, a great point. Brian. <laughs> I actually, I've really enjoyed the last calendar year. I think specifically, uh, when I go to a grocery store, I will always just peruse and kind of wander and lose my mind looking at the beer aisles to see what's changed, what's coming in, what's coming out, price points. The ice cream aisle uh, has actually been something that's been really fascinating for me to watch, and not just because uh, of inspiration that brewers are getting for pastry stuff. Uh, but if you look at, so the idea of premiumization exists everywhere, uh, pet food, ice cream in particular, because if you look at, say, the collection of brands 
that have been focusing on, say, a lower carb or keto diet or a low calorie, these ice creams that very prominently display themselves as whatever it is, 150 calories per serving, which are doing really, really well because people are actively passing up maybe that private label or that Haagen-Dazs in favor of something that maybe they're spending a little bit more money on, but they have that immediate reaction of feeling better. And both in terms of uh, as a consumer psychologically, but also pursue uh, the presumed physical feeling better as well because it's you know healthier. Mm-hmm. And I think that feeling better, you know, drink local philosophy, it's a really interesting viewpoint. I think so many millennials have it right now. But on the other hand, it's almost a dichotomy when you look at the current state of you know, craft beer. There's so much e-commerce coming to the market right now. So while on one hand you have the drink local, support your local brewery, so many breweries are trying to get in the e-commerce game where they're shipping their beer nationwide. What are your thoughts, all you fine people, on you know what breweries are seeing success keeping with the drink local movement versus you know why should a brewery consider going national and really try to not just get that drink local but think national mindset? I feel like the pandemic has put the, the answer to this completely on its head. I mean, right before the pandemic, what I was predicting was more satellite tap rooms, um, increased focus on local in the, you know, wherever those tap rooms were, um, you know, more sales right over the, right over the counter. Um, and now, as we know, um, you know, the pandemic has somewhat obliterated the ability to at least count on the fact that you're going to be able to get people to come through your door. So there goes to some extent that tap room, satellite tap room model. Um, as we know, it's all about packaging, packaging, packaging now. Um, and so it's so it's so interesting that the answer that you know what we're looking at for next year is so different than what we were looking at for this year at this time last year. Yeah, Tara, that's, it, it also becomes, uh, it's funny because consumer spending on local goods is actually at its highest peak right now in the U.S. of what it's been. And that arose during the, I, and I don't have the statistic right in front of me. I think it's like 40% higher. People are more aware of that they should shop local and shop small, you know, but then you get into the arena of, e-commerce right and then what's local anymore like yes it's made locally in that but then it also has like a national reach so you kind of get into like a a paradox situation and um actually andrew i think this was discussed on an earlier panel earlier today about e-commerce and and where that's going i think if you um if you have the brand awareness national reach or getting outside of your backyard is going to be a a lot easier. Or if you're going gung ho with building brand awareness through like digital marketing or some kind of advertising investment, something like that, that's fine. But um, don't expect miracles in e-commerce if you're not putting some work behind it. You know what I mean? Like, yes, what's, what's the saying? Is it dominate the mile or dominate your backyard? You know, things like that, right? Like you rule the mile mile is what I used earlier today. Okay. Yeah. So that's, I mean, but that still holds true, right? So you want to kind of build that base. The problem is, is a lot of people haven't had time to do that. 
you know, and, and then now it's having this extensive reach. Um, there's so many segues that we could go into this. I feel like my head is like spinning. I feel like I'm going to talk about like a million different things, but, um, you know, I also, uh, I spoke at a conference two weeks ago at the craft beverage expo. Tara was there as well. And the biggest takeaways from that was e-commerce, like things to focus on in 2021. It was e-commerce, it was packaging, it was digital marketing, and it was also um, higher level training for the people that are serving your products, wherever that might be, whether it's in-house or, or outside as well. And I found that really interesting um, just for people that are grasping this whole uh, idea of like branching out and packaging for the first time and distributing for the first time and so on and so forth. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Brian. Uh, I'll, I'll add in that. I'll kick it to you, Aaron. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think the two, two of those things that obviously that Julie that you're talking about, number one, uh, e-commerce, number three, digital marketing, like go hand in hand. Uh, and I think the, the biggest two things that I've taken away from talking with breweries and like brewery decision makers around the country these last nine months is one that this is a space that you have to exist in, uh, if only to meet your customers where they are. Uh, and there are a wide range of how, of how you can uh, enter this. And it could be as easy as setting up that page on your website where people can order something for curbside pickup to something that is as uh, maybe experiential as an app uh, that some breweries have used to both turn to essentially gamify the purchase prices. Um, but second of all, and uh, Aaron, I'm curious if this is something that you've had conversations with, with some of the folks that you work with too, is that we are coming up now on what will be the first official full shelf reset in almost a full calendar year. And when we're talking about major retail points, there have both between a wholesaler as well as those retail channels, there has never been more incentive to go to and bring in the largest producers you can because of their reliability, because you know the product's going to be there and how out of stocks has impacted things over the course of this pandemic. So not only are you meeting people where they are in e-commerce, but you're also giving yourself the opportunity to showcase brands that might not have a space in some of the places where you've gotten your beer or other beverage alcohol products before. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be mindful of, if only just for the sake of this is something that people are doing and you should exist in the space in which they are buying things. Yeah. So uh, to, to your point, Brian, to, to kind of res respond to your uh, alley-oop there. Uh, yeah. The cur current predictions have, um, retailers, especially large retailers, uh, rationalizing down about 30% of their total SKUs in um, the beer segment. That, that's a massive amount of rationalization. Wholesalers are rationalizing about the same amount, at least the ones that are tracked. So most of the larger ones, some of the independent ones are holding steady or even gaining brands. But, you know, those Bud and Miller houses, they're cutting brands like crazy. Uh, and, and I think the biggest issue going into this pandemic and one of the reasons we've seen the, the model shift so much, aside from the obvious logistical concerns, is beer, I, I call it kind of the arrogance of the rising tide. So quick, quick anecdote, I actually way back when, years ago, used to sell advertising for a craft beer magazine. 
and going around to breweries and trying to pitch the idea of advertising your magazine uh, at the time and now was like pulling teeth because their attitude was, it's craft beer. It's doing great. We're gaining share. Why the hell do we need to advertise? Uh, which at the time seems like a really tough thing to argue with, but it's because the entire category was rising so much that it was able to hide a lot of the problems that were inherent either in these businesses or hide the inherent competition that was, was always bubbling under the surface and was really coming to a head. So it's not so much that something changed to make that taproom model no longer functional or this this is some massive surprise. We should have always seen it coming. It was going to eventually happen as that white space kept getting eaten up and eaten up and the industry continued to fragment. So we were always going to have to move towards something that would help protect against externalities and market shocks. And then we get the biggest externality and market shock of the last 100 years. And it's waking a lot of people in the industry right up. Uh, but it is. It's massively important. Um, to, to Julie's point before, one of the biggest issues is just a lack of customers really being aware of the fact that you can even buy beer and alcohol online. Um, it, it, it is not something that has a ton of penetration. Um, I think it's something like 12 percent of customers over the last over the course of the pandemic have even added alcohol to their to go and uh, curbside and online orders. That's pitifully small by comparison to the number of people who are actually buying food online. Um, and for beer's part, it's done a terrible job of trying to appeal to those segments. Uh, beer makes up, I believe, uh, 12% of all, pretty sure I got the number right, 12% of all uh, e-commerce alcohol sales. Uh, meanwhile, wine, the average winery does 30% of its revenue direct to consumer. That is a massive disparity. Keep in mind that wine is the third largest category in beverage alcohol. So, Beer has not felt much of a need to enter that space, and it's not done a very good job of participating in that space. Um, and it's becoming more and more apparent that especially as e-commerce increases so much, uh, they really need to be better about that. I mean, a year ago, e-commerce made up about 2 to 3% of total beverage alcohol sales uh, per annum. This year, it's about 8%. That is a... 400% increase in 12 months. Now, that's been driven by the pandemic, and I'm sure everybody else has opinions on how things are going to look when things uh, start getting back to normal. But for a lot of people, we're well past the, this is, you know, how we're living in the pandemic. This is their routine now. I'm getting curbside groceries for the rest of my life because I'm late. <laughs> and I think for a lot of people, you're going to see the same things. So at least to a degree. So we need to be prepared for that reality. And it's really the reality that as an industry, we always should have been trying to make more of an effort towards. Aaron, well, I want to go back to the stat you pulled out earlier. You said beer yes, represents about 12% 12, about 12 of the online alcohol sales. And, you know, projections looked at e-commerce for alcohol in the United States is to increase by 80% in 2020. So to look at beer only being 12%. I don't want to say that's a little embarrassing, but it's almost a little embarrassing. And it shows that we have a long way to go in that sector, really step up our business game and step up our e-commerce game. But I, I do want to put a little positive spin on this. What strategies have you foreseen in the direct-to-consumer market that breweries have done a really good job of with connecting with the customers and making this transaction happen? Julie, this is your, your, your round. <laughs> I will go on to that. Although I am going to give a like precursor to that because I, lo I love giving people analogies about how to interpret some of this stuff. And I, I want people to think about these statistics kind of like nesting dolls, if that makes sense. So you've got like the big um, overarching like beverage alcohol 
increase, right? Like, like a big number, right? And then you start peeling away the layers. So you get down into that, what's wine, what's spirits, what, you know, what makes up all of that. And then you go even further, right? And drill down to what is actually beer. Okay, well, the beer numbers, like Tara said, like kind of, you know, it's sort of these inflated numbers, right? But if you go even further, it's, you know, macro beer, it's seltzers, it's FMBs, it's, you know, things like that. So just be careful when you're looking at statistics, make sure that you read the whole article, make sure that you drill down far, far enough to where going back to what Tara said, and I think Brian, I think everybody on here, you've got to dig into the details. Because if you just look at the headline, it's, it's not going to get you anywhere. So that's, that's my soapbox, first of all. Julie, can I can I add a citation to that? Yeah, to sure. help yeah. thing too. So, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, causes some confusion is when we read about the beer category, which does include beer, but also almost always includes flavored malt beverages, uh, read hard seltzer, uh, which itself are giving an incredible boost to those growth percentages that we see. So that's why one of the things I like to do is when I'm pulling the IRI data that I use, I separate out FNBs from that. So here's here's the, the tail of the tape to get to your point exactly. 52 week period ending in November. The beer category, which includes FNBs, was up about 14% year to year. But once you remove FNBs and just make it just beer, it's a little under 8% growth. So it is a rather seismic shift once you start looking at the, the specifics of what you can find from that data. Yeah. Subscribe no. to BBH sightlines. Point. <laughs> no, getting back to what's working with consumers because you hear about, uh, and by the way, I get really frustrated sometimes because I think a lot of people talk about like, oh, this is the what of what you're supposed to be doing to reach people. And um, I get frustrated when nobody explains the how. So I'm just going to, you know, blow the top off of this right now. Um, you, you, you need to go to your consumer, right? Well, where is your consumer? Your consumer's at home. They're behind their computer screen. They're on Zoom. They're on their mobile device, right? So think about where people are interacting with your brand in that space that has become their new normal, even though I hate that saying, but that's okay. Um, you know, so if you're not participating in digital marketing, if you're not amping up your um, virtual presence, you're, you're just going to fall further behind. And I get people that ask me all the time, um, is it worth it for me to do an online store? Is it worth it for me to optimize my website? Is it worth it for me to care about what I look like on Facebook or Yelp or my online reputation, all that kind of stuff, right? Yes. It's not a question of, is it worth it anymore? It's how far are you going to fall behind everybody else if you don't get on top of it? Because this innovation for our industry would have happened over the next couple of years. The pandemic was the catalyst that put it into like fast forward and, and forward motion, right? So the innovation that we would have seen over the next three to five years happened in literally three to five months. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So what is working? Connect with your consumer. Be personal, personable, right? Like connect on a personal level. Um, if you look at you know, major advertisers right now, they're not ignoring 
the pandemic. They're embracing the fact that people are hurting. People need to come together. Don't avoid the topic um, of the health crisis, right? Like reach out to people, let them know that you're an actual human brand and not just like a robot behind your computer, right? And there's ways that you can do that. It's as simple as replying to some Facebook comments or reaching out to other people on Instagram and saying, thank you for your business. Tagging users that come to your brewery, appreciating people that take pictures of getting beer to go. You know what I mean? It's just, it's simple things. And yes, you can do all the uh, virtual tastings and the stuff like that, but you've got to interact with people. You can't just throw a brewmaster on Zoom and expect things to magically happen. You've got to get them to connect with people because that across the bar where whatever it is, right? Tap room, tasting room, whatever, in-person store demos, all that stuff, that in-person experience, you've got to take to them and you've got to know what they want and what they're thinking and what their mindset is and what their awareness level is of your brand before you can actually connect with them. Because if you skip some steps, they're gonna get very confused. This is why I always refer to marketing like dating. Like if you skip over some stuff, it's gonna be horribly confusing and you're gonna turn off a bunch of people and they're gonna run screaming the other direction to somebody else that's not so like that. Um, so, you know, figure out where your consumer is awareness wise, figure out what channels you can reach them on digitally that are cost effective. Digital is very cost effective. Um, and then go to them with authentic messages about your brand and what you're all about and your origin story and what you do and how you're serving that community. And it's a pretty magical thing when that happens, honestly. And please, God, can we get some breweries making YouTube commercials? Because I swear to God, every time I'm on YouTube now, there's this one commercial for <laughs> Lady Gaga just singing by a tree, and I can't deal with it anymore. So I need you people. I need more beer in my life. I can tell you right now, I, digital I advertising I is not as expensive as people think it is. It's totally doable. <laughs> you, you can do digital advertising. It's not don't be scared of it. It's it's very feasible for small business owners. <laughs> and at this point in the conversation, I have to pause. We have an advertiser who's paid to have a spot right now. And I want to tell everybody, <laughs> next time you go to the store, continue buying Aaron's peanut butter stout. He's really looking forward to you to supporting his peanut butter habit. First of all, how dare you? I have no second of all. How dare you, sir? I hate peanut butter. That's it, world. I hate peanut butter. Go ahead and roast me in the comments now. I don't care. It's disgusting, and all of you are in a collective delusion that it's good. It's the worst. I bet you hate pineapple pizza as well, don't you? I do hate pineapple on pizza. Love it in tacos, You're one of those. not on pizza. Well, back to the conversation. Thanks for taking the time to sponsor that segment, Aaron. I really appreciate You're that. Welcome, I want to kind of throw out a talking point that I think will get some of the subjective you know, ness of the consumer, but also a little bit of data. You know, right now, what is the consumer craving? Do they want to just go pick something up and take it home or do they want that experience? You know, early pandemic, you know, Tara, I know you've mentioned before the stockpiling that took place. You know, people were picking up tons of toilet paper, tons of beer. You know, they were getting liquor, too. But when you look at all those purchases, they don't necessarily correspond to consumption. You know, with breweries 10 years ago, you had breweries that can make really good beer and be successful. The taproom experience over the past decade has become possibly the most important part of craft beer, you know, outside of obviously quality beer. Where do we currently stand and what does the current you know, craft beer consumer truly want in 2020? IPAs. 
<laughs> that's the easy way out. Shout out to you, um, well, um, you know, these, um, obviously we talked about bigger beers being popular and IPAs continuing to hold their ground. Um, uh, lagers, as far as, you know, from a production side are a really good bet and people seem to be buying them as fast as they're coming out of the, uh, coming out of the equipment. Um, some of these sort of, um, barrel aged, um, was it good beer hunting that just wrote a story about that the other day, Brian? Um, uh, that was Beervana. That was Jeff over at Beervana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Our other favorite beer writer. <laughs> um, you know, the demand for sort of these beers that generally come in a larger format, the like bigger, longer storing beers aren't really doing so well anymore. And um, you have to kind of put yourself in a consumer's shoes, as you've been saying, like you're home, your kid's doing their homework, you're watching TV, um, you don't necessarily want to take, you don't want to necessarily make a big commitment to drinking a beer for the night. Maybe you want like two cans of something and then you'll go to bed. You don't want to get, um, you know, you don't want to feel too much of the alcoholic effects of it. You don't want to have to force yourself to drink the last third of that 750 because it's open. Um, that happens to me all the time. Um, so I would say, you know, small and quick. Like, let's get it done. Let's get it in. Especially the more um, the off-premise is shut down. I mean, the on-premise is shut down, I think. You're not having these necessarily these social occasions with your beer. You're having just, I need to relax. If my kid doesn't go back to school soon, I might die. Um, so, um, you know, things that are 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 quicker to quicker to drink, get down, and then toss and have another one the next night. Yeah, I think. And actually, sorry to interrupt, but that does sort of bring me back to one of the stories that I I wrote earlier in the pandemic, which was people are drinking. Women, especially, there was like a big headline: women are drinking 17% more during the pandemic. It was that women were drinking on more occasions, on more days, but drinking less during each occasion. Um, and depending on the demographics, that varied a little bit. But you really did see a big um, boost in the number of nights that people were drinking, but not necessarily a commensurate amount per session. I can speak from experience. That's why I raised my hand on that because I'm homeschooling my grade school kids. And I know that I'm not going to lie. People can get mad at me for this. I've opened a 750 and just drank like three or four ounces. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to go after that. <laughs> like, you know, so it might. And um, I forgot who makes them, but I've seen these adorable little like, what are they like? Eight ounce cans, like the little buddies. Yeah, like little... And I love the idea of that. Like, I love it because I don't have a big group of friends, Tara. Like, it, to your point, like, I'm not um, having a shareable bottle. And sometimes, honestly, my husband and I can't polish off a 750, even between the two of us, if it's like a 12 or 13 percenter. You know what I mean? Like, it's I still have humans that I have to take care of. So, I, you know, um, it's interesting to even though the I find that fascinating that like the ABVs are rising, but our, our quantities are actually like shrinking, maybe? I don't know. I, I Does anybody else find that 
kind of interesting or fascinating? I'd be curious to know. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to I bridge, uh, Tara, Julie, what you're talking about, um, because I think one of the, the biggest themes that I've had uh, in terms of conversations with people across uh, retail outlets throughout the pandemic has been the idea of the removal of barriers. Uh, so Julie, when you're talking about this idea of e-commerce, one, it's existing there, uh, it's as simple as having a click to get to your shop kind of thing where you'll find that Tioga Sequoia Brewery out in California does it well, Three's Brewing out of New York does it well, Highland here in North Carolina started doing digital advertising on Instagram and Facebook to do that. Um, the removal of barriers in retail outlet where we've seen over and over again, especially as we've had these spikes of cases in each individual state where the behavior of people in that setting is they're spending less time, they're spending less mental energy trying to make up the decision of what they're purchasing. This is for um, food and beverage as a whole, but then I'm almost just as important Tara, to what you were talking about, you know, echoing this, this never ending idea of IPAs being the thing, there's a removal of barrier of guesswork there mm -hmm. is that whether or not you're an IPA fan, uh, you're a beer geek or not, is that that's an easy signifier to at least understand what you're getting. And the biggest takeaway from a stylistic standpoint for me over the course of the last nine months, IPA has been huge. Uh, but fruit beer, in terms of its percentage growth in IRI channels, has been uh, about 10 to 15 percent higher in growth than IPA. Now, granted, we're talking about, you know, uh, multiples of dollars in terms of IPA versus fruit beer. But the, the takeaway when I think about that, again, it's the removal of barrier of guesswork is that if somebody is strolling through a beer aisle, and they're trying to make the visual cues to make that decision as short and easy and efficient as they can. And they see, say, a peach on your beer can. There's no guesswork there. The barrier has been removed. They can look at maybe they recognize you from the local or in-state section. They're OK with the price. It's done. So along every step of the way, I think that the finding ways to simplify the decision making process for a consumer has been really key. So there's actually an economic, sorry, sorry, Tara. Uh, there's actually an economic term for that, Brian. It's um, transactional friction. So the idea behind that is that everything that surrounds a transaction occurring in an economy that, that inhibits it from happening when it otherwise might have, uh, winds up creating this transactional friction. It's a source of economic inefficiency. So you're right, but if this has done nothing else, it has shortened that gap between the people making the beer and the people who are wanting to drink that beer. And things like fruit, uh, to your point, I mean, we have over a hundred beer styles out there. People wonder all the time why something like Bach doesn't sell. It's not because people don't like Bach. It's because they don't know what the hell a Bach is. And no matter how many Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be Bach or Empire Strikes Bach jokes you might happen to make, they don't know what the hell the base beer is. So when you have something like fruit, yeah, they interact with that in their daily cuisine and when they're eating, you know, in their childhood. They've been familiar with Jolly Ranchers that are peach since they were, you know, five years old or whenever the hell you give kids Jolly Ranchers. I don't know. I should probably figure that out. I have a two-year-old. But uh, no, anything that allows, that shortens that gap between consumer and supplier and lets them know what they're getting uh, there's this huge misperception, uh, speaking to drinking misperceptions about what styles are for. 
I mean, unless you're talking about a formal beer competition, all a style is is an indicator to the consumer of what they can expect from a particular product. Uh, when you have so many of them and they're not well communicated and they are so diverse and for most people, beer is just one thing in their day they have to worry about. Uh, it creates a much larger barrier for some of those lesser known ones. So rather than being a linear uh, scale of transactional friction, it winds up being a lot more logarithmic. So those ones that people are familiar with outperform even what you'd expect just based on a percentage of what they, they capture. Yeah, I do think that we will continue to see what we started seeing last year and, and increasingly for this year, even before COVID, which was um, the condensing the number of beers that a particular brewery puts out. And I think of this in terms of menu items at a restaurant, you know, COVID came along and all of a sudden you've got like 10 things on the menu you can order when before you had 25. Um, it's sort of trimming the extraneous stuff that like you guys are saying, you know, somebody might get curious and want to try, but we're not in a place where we can, where breweries can necessarily take risks like that anymore. I mean, we saw it at the beginning of the pandemic, like crazy, crazy flagships were going up. People were going back to your BMCs and it wasn't necessarily just for comfort and it wasn't necessarily, um, just because it's what they know, it was just easy. Like, oh, I've only got a minute to go into the, um, you know, to order my beer and have them bring it out to the trunk, or, you know, I just want to run in and grab something. Um, I don't want to spend time thinking about it. So, um, yeah, I think that the box, I love box, by the way, and I wrote a fabulous headline about box the other day, and nobody complimented me on it. But, um, you know, it, I think I think with a lot of things, beer styles included, it's going to be familiarity, 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 because um, the brewers know that's going to move. And like you guys are saying, it's just easy, it's quick, it's comfortable. Um, there's not really any experimentation required, um, and so I, I sense a constricting. Um, I agree, Brian. Sorry, not to interject, but I wanted to at least say. A hundred percent, Tara. Yes, I because people are during a crisis, they're risk averse, right? Everybody is risk averse. Like you don't want to take risks, whether that's spending money or trying something new or, you know, you're not going to do like adventures and whatever it is, right? Especially with your recreation time, right? So, and I'll get to my point here in a second about how this affects breweries directly is that um, you're looking at consolidated menus, right? And even buyers are going with what's familiar and what sells, right? So anybody that's selling in the wholesale channel right now, if you can remind your buyers of why your beer sells and how reliable it is and maybe your sales velocity, it might help a little bit with some of that rationalization challenge that we're, we're gonna, all of us are gonna face. And also to, again, know where your consumer is coming from, right? You're not getting um, samplers across the bar. You're not getting tasters, right? So how, even if you have something that is a little bit riskier in the eyes of a consumer, like something that's not peach, that's not familiar to them, like how are you making that accessible to them so that they are looking to purchase it, right? Like, are you offering, you know, I know this sounds horrible and this is like blasphemy for all of us beer people, but um, if you have, I've heard people doing like little, like the plastic uh, restaurant ramekins 
that are pre-packaged that are safe that you could slide in with like a to-go order just to let people try something on their own safely um, so that they aren't so risk adverse next time. Or, um, you know, if you're a bar or restaurant or brew pub or whatever, like what can you do to maybe put like a single can as like a sample of something new that you have, like ways for people to um, be a little bit more educated about that so they aren't so risk averse and thinking about that piece of it as as well because you don't want people to be scared of trying something that isn't quite familiar to them. Yeah, I, I just wanna give a qualifier to one of the things that I think that uh, I've noticed often in talking with wholesalers during the pandemic is that uh, familiarity uh, in a lot of ways means availability and price. Uh, and so when we talk about, you know, I don't want to discredit the success that something like Boston Lager has had this year or Fat Tire or Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Um, but it's also just a small blip after years of declines. Uh, people are buying those beers because they're readily available. They're priced very easily. Uh, I think there is a romanticism involved in saying people are turning back these beers because they know what they're gonna get. Uh, there's a too large a swath of consumers to make that broad assumption. So I think availability and pricing are really, really important and things that people need to be mindful of. Um, that when we talk about familiarity, the most important thing I think again, in hearing this over and over, is brand affinity, not a particular, say, beer brand, but what you stand for in terms of your local community or your state, is that when 40% when of people are making an extra effort to shop local and they see you as a brand, like now is the time to cash in your brand affinity with your local market because people are looking to spend their money with you. And if you can meet them in that middle space, that's the place to play. I love it. I want to dive into a little bit more about Brian, what Brian just said. We've, we've talked a lot about what people are drinking these days. I want to talk a little bit more about where people are purchasing what they're drinking. We've kind of just touched on it. I like to dive into it a little bit deeper. You know, obviously in the world of COVID right now, people are going out a little bit less, quite a bit less actually. And I did a study in October and found that 57% of people are putting more planning into when they go to a brewery visit. So their brewery visits are becoming more intentional. But guess what? When people go out these days, I would argue that they might spend a little bit more when they go out. Because when I go to that brewery and I have one IPA and I know I need beer at my house, I can be very easily convinced to purchase, you know, a crowler, growler can, whatever it is to take home with me. On the other hand, breweries and consumers are going to places like the convenience store. They're going to the grocery store. They're going to Target because that's where they're going to stockpile on everything else they need. So if they're, you know, in the beverage aisle at Target and they see Sam Adams Lager or they see Fat Tire, you know, that's something they're familiar with. So they're buying at locations that are storing some of these larger brands that we've talked about today. What are you guys' thoughts on trends with regard to where people will be purchasing? And, you know, how is this going to continue to change and evolve as we get out of this pandemic and into 2021? Your I'm just going to start screaming, convenience channel. <laughs> like, and I'll let Brian do all the stats, but like off-premise, convenience, large grocery, wholesale clubs, things like that, and go. Okay. Yeah, if it's anecdotally right now, the time of year with travel, like air travel is down dramatically. 
Uh, more people are traveling via car if they are traveling right now. Uh, so, year um, outpacing all of the inconvenience channels in terms of uh, monthly growth throughout the last six months. Like this is simply a place again. We've, we've talked over and over again tonight about meeting people where they are. Like this is where people are right now. And I realize a lot of that benefits coming from uh, larger transferries. But if there are ways to get in there, that's really really important. Um, there's also a uh, uh in, in just outside of Chicago, uh, who I just talked to recently in terms of their on-premise situation. They set up uh, what they're calling a, a dome forest, where it's enclosed igloos where people can reserve 90-minute sessions uh, to sit there with up to six people and have and have beers brought to them. Um, the brewery in the first two weeks, this was the, that they had those in play saw an 18% uptick in sales versus last year in the same period at the last two weeks in November. So convenience in terms of where people are going, how they're traveling and buying goods, making those short, quick stops again. But also if you're thinking about how you want people to exist physically in your geographical space, again, finding ways to make that comfort level as high as possible you know, it doesn't maybe not have to be as far as creating a dome forest of transparent igloos, which is really cool. But it's also a case, you know, uh, Salamoth all in, they spent about $15,000 on the igloos, uh, cleaning equipment, uh, aesthetics for the parking lot where they sent it up. And they expect to recoup all of that within the first 30 days of having that in place. I, I were I can well being in Colorado I can vouch for a lot of that because we're worried about snow we're worried about cold weather right so a lot of the people that we've seen around here um, that have done like the snow domes they've done greenhouses to take advantage of our sunshine here in Colorado even though it might be snowing there's probably sun at the same time um, but doing things like that I would encourage people I don't every state is different so I don't know how it's structured but you might want to poke around with your um, state restaurant association and see if they have grants that can help you recoup um, winterizing. Um, some people can, some people can't. The regulations are different. So, but it's just an idea. Your state might have something going on that can help you. Um, Look at the regulations as well before you consider any of this to make sure you can even do it. Yes. I, I <laughs> but the people that I have seen do this have had bookings days out in advance, which is fantastic. So, yeah. I, I would also caution two, th two things with respect to that. One is the more places that do stuff like that, the less appeal it has to that subset of consumers who's really intrigued by it. And two is I'm already hearing rumbles at the legal level that there is there's probably going to be a slap down on that coming. Um, and that'll obviously happen state by state, but there have been several pretty prominent articles published recently criticizing the fact that some of those solutions aren't any better than internal dining, which right. usually follows with those getting lumped in. So before you start making massive investment, uh, feel out with your local, like your state guild is, is probably the best thing that you can do because they're really good for taking the temperature of how regulation and, and all that's going. Uh, and make sure that that's not something you're going to pour a ton of investment in that then may wind up having a negative effect on you. Can I, I say don't know. Oh, go um, ahead, Terry. I don't know 
what they're doing about windows or keeping um, two sides of them open, but I have heard, and Julie, maybe you've been there, of a brewery in Colorado that has repurposed ski gondolas mm -hmm. um, for dining. And it just um, sort of makes me think of all the possibilities for reclaim and reuse, which, Julie, yeah. to your point, there could be some sorts of environmental grants available for doing yeah a lot of the ones that i've seen either have like flaps of some point that can be uh raised that's just partial for ventilation so it um adheres to guidelines that like certain like a certain percentage of it has to be open and it has to be empty for a certain amount of time for things to be cleaned and recycled and things like that. So it just, de it depends on your state. But I saw Andrew, somebody, I think it was Melissa earlier said something about DTC and about how hard that is for the beer industry. And so before we go, I just wanted to make sure like people, um, we can change this if we try. Um, that's the best that we can do. No, none of us have like a ton of money but um, the BA has lobbying interests in DC. The state guilds have lobbyists that uh, speak up on our behalf. I'm not saying that that's gonna solve everything, but the more people can reach out to your local representatives to advocate for our industry so that we can change and get into the same boat as the wine industry and the spirits industry so that DTC is a little bit more relaxed, the better. So if anybody wants to know what they can do on the ground level, just write to your congressman, please. Like just email them, send them a letter, speak up at guild events. You know, if, if all of us- Support your state guilds. Support your state guilds. I'm just saying it- We, we need them. We can't do anything just talking about it. And this uh, goes, this glazes over a lot of issues in our industry right now. If we keep talking about things, but we don't act on them, nothing is going to change. And then we get into the definition of insanity, right? So, um, you know, the more that we can do on a local level that expands to a national level, the better. There are restrictions for DTC, and we would all benefit if we could get those either overturned or amended in some way. Yeah, and I think, Julie, to touch on some key words you just said, it's all about education and it's all about engagement. We have to take action if we want to see change. And Tara, I really commend you for putting out articles like you did that have facilitated conversations like this because, you know, no one likes fake news. You know, we like hearing the real data and why it's important. Brian, is there something you'd like to add there? No, I just appreciate uh, the insight from everybody here. Uh, these are the conversations that I miss having with friends at uh, CBC and GBF. And so I'm just appreciative of really great insight from everybody. No, and been, thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure Perfect. listening to you guys today. And I have one last question to ask you on the way out. We've been doing this at every single panel of the day. And the question is, you know, 2020 has been a very rough year. Tell us one positive spot in your 2020 that you've experienced during the pandemic. Leave us with a little positivity, starting with you, Brian, then Aaron, Julie, and I don't know if Tara's with us anymore. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, when, we, when we first started, I mentioned, so I, I'm the director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers, um, and we've been having virtual happy hours, which act as both a personal and a professional development uh, events for the last several months. Uh, and that is to get to the point of what I just said, like, 
it really does kind of warm my heart a little bit being able to connect with people. Uh, and these are the conversations that I miss truly from the industry events, which, which we can't have. So uh, this is it counted amongst those things, too, where I get to talk with really smart people uh, who I am lucky to be friends with as well. No, thanks for being here, Brian. And, and Tara's back. It's been really great to get to know you this past few hours. Now, Aaron, we're going to keep it in a circular fashion now. So tell us a little positive spot from your 2020. I mean, there is the uh, the Zoom date that me and Brian have in uh, exactly seven days, which I'm very much looking forward to. Easy Tiger. Hasn't happened yet. Uh, doesn't count. Aside, <laughs> um, aside from that, no, the, the biggest bright spot for me all year has been the fact that in spite of being – you know, locked up in spite of my wife having a full-time job and going for her master's because she's a badass. Uh, I got a two-and-a-half-year-old little girl at home, and I've gotten to spend more time with her this year than I ever would have gotten to without it. So for everything negative in the world, that is the biggest positive by far and one that I wouldn't trade for anything. I mean, little brewer in training. She taught herself the word hops. I am going to have a really awkward parent-teacher conference day. I'm sure. So Aaron, I can share your appreciation there. I have almost a one and a half year old and he loves kangaroos and he'll get in the bathtub, play with this little toy and just go hop, hop, hop. And it's the most fantastic thing in the world. So yeah, it's been definitely a great bright spot of my year as well. So thanks for sharing. Julie, we've had so many conversations this year that have been so great, but you know, tell us looking back on your year, what's been one of your highlights that's been a positive spot? Uh, you know, I think it's just been the fact that um, digital has been embraced through this whole thing. And I don't think that there's thousands of breweries out there that wouldn't be able to reach people if we hadn't had this like immersion of um, digital innovation and this emphasis on digital marketing. Like, you know, there's, there's little local places that, I mean, not to go on and on, but um, you know, my family and I, uh, we go back and forth to New Mexico quite a bit because we're right there. Right. And there's, um, I'm going to give a shout out to, uh, Colfax ale cellar, which is in, um, Raton, New Mexico. And <laughs> they're tiny, they're super seasonal, right? It's small. It's in the middle of like a tiny town. Right. So when COVID hit, it's like, what do you even do? And they've made the best of it. And to be honest with you, they weren't on my radar until, a conversation that happened in the craft beer professionals group. And now every time we make that road trip back and forth, I stop there and it's fantastic food, fantastic beer. But I'm just saying it was uh, that happened because of digital connections that are being made in our market. And I love, love, love seeing that because I think it has just an endless possibility of outreach for so many brands that are on the come up and up and coming. So um, yeah, I, I adore seeing that. And yes, my nine-year-old and my six-year-old are now on to beer tasting notes. Please don't call child services on me. It's a tiny sip and we're teaching them how to, we've gotten past the, this is what mom and dad do. And, you know, now we're on to tasting notes, which is really fun. So you have something to look forward to. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. You got to be positive. Something to look forward to. Sarah, how about you? What's been one of your highlights of 2020 so far? Uh, main highlight, I don't have children. <laughs> uh, uh, well, 
I've, I've actually really gotten to enjoy my um my I call it my lanai. It's actually my back patio. Um, it's been an absolute lifesaver this year for me. Um, and I have written my first book, which I mentioned before. Just sent um, round one of edits in late last night. And um, professionally, as far as COVID goes, I've really really appreciated and loved seeing people's creativity like taking a, an unforeseen horrible situation and turning it into something super ridiculously cool makes me happy <laughs> yeah i mean there have been some positives for 2020 and that's how we got to look back at it and that's how we get to get through the next few weeks into a better year because 2021 is definitely going to be a better year for us all and brian aaron stop Stop. We said that about this year. We said it couldn't get worse in 2019. What are you thinking, Andrew? Aaron, you're so negative. I'm going to mute you for a second. But Brian, Aaron, Julie, and Tara, I really, really appreciate you taking the time out of you guys today to be here today. These conversations are fantastic. I think one of my favorite aspects of the pandemic has been getting close to get to know so many great people just virtually. And, you know, what, even though we're thousands of miles away in some situations, it's been really great to have these conversations and learn and just talk to one another because it gives that little bit of human interaction we miss so much. So yeah. thank you for, for joining us. I hope everybody watching has enjoyed and have a great rest of your day. See you, everybody. Hey. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye.